I've got a um, topic I'd like to touch on. I've realized my understanding of something, you know, you know, the older you get, the, you kind of see things differently. But I remember as a young man, um, I, I had a view of what a man of God is. Uh, and I think it came from, uh, honestly, um, a little bit of influence of my parents, uh, people, you know, when I was, especially as a little kid, I remember getting around our little 13 inch television. Um, and it was black and white and it had the hanger with the foil. You guys, you guys are older, you remember those days. Um, and, uh, but I remember watching what I thought was a man of God and, um, I, I wouldn't have been wrong in my opinion. Um, uh, how many of you guys grew up watching, you know, Billy? Remember when Billy was, was younger, he was fiery, man. When he, if you didn't, if you only saw him when he was older, he was, he was very calm and very shepherding pastoral, but back in the early days, man, he was a fiery preacher. But I remember thinking that's what a man of God is. I remember watching in that same kind of era before, you know, does anybody see the old movie or read the book, A Man Called Peter? Anybody? Yeah, that's, I remember thinking there's a man of God. Like I remember just seeing certain types of individuals and sort of equating. But then my, um, my uh, view changed. Maybe you guys saw Cecil B. DeMille's uh, in the Moses movie. And I thought, oh, there's a man of God. And I could tell just by the way he said the word bondage. It was like, bondage. Like, you know, Charlton Heston, you know. Uh, um, and, and then this, this guy here, remember, um, uh, remember if you watched Little House on the Prairie, that was the other show we watched, Billy Graham and Little House on the Prairie, and then uh, eventually Gilligan's Island. But um, uh, we were getting real racy with that one. But, but Reverend Alden, and I remember being scared by this guy. I thought this guy was creepy. Uh, um, and then maybe you enter into the 80s, maybe you guys remember this man of God. Uh, um, this guy uh, was called the most impressive clergyman. <laughs> Malik brings us together today. That's the way, anyway, uh, quite a guy. That was, uh, what was that, Princess Bride? Um, and, and then um, I remember feeling a little bit like, oh, this is a man of God, uh, if you guys remember this one here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Preacher, if you, if you remember that. Uh, pale Rider, uh, uh, Steve the Tour Guide in Israel. I, I had an issue where I had to kind of turn up the heat a little bit as the leader of our group to some some people that were giving us trouble. And uh, Steve kind of stepped back and said, wow, you're like the pale rider. And because and, and so uh, he called me pale rider the rest of that trip. Uh, but anyway, that's a whole nother story. But the idea of a man of God, as it turns out, it's not Clint Eastwood for sure. I can, I can tell you that. Um, um, there's just two places in the New Testament where a person is called a man of God. And both are in Paul's letter to Timothy, and they reveal some serious attributes that warrant, I think, calling someone a man of God. And it's, we'll start with 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is the first time this idea of the man of God in the New Testament is brought up. Um, and there it says, But thou, O man of God, flee these things, and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness, Fight the good fight of faith and lay hold on eternal life whereunto thou art also called that, uh, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Um, you know, this is a, a good list. It's a good checklist. If you want to say, man, am, am I fitting that category? Uh, if, if someone were to call me a man of God, um, would, would these attributes fit? And man, what, a, what an important thing. You know, uh, linked to this, you know, what we're supposed to flee, uh, there's a lot of things Paul tells the young ministers to flee. Flee fornication, flee youthful lust, flee, um, you know, greed is kind of the context here. Greediness and, you know, the love of money, which is the root of all evil. Um, and so you're supposed to flee all those things, but follow, you know, righteousness, that which is right. Um, godliness, being like God. How do you know if you're being like God? You got to know who God is and his nature. I always kind of marvel at um, people who say, well, how do you know who God is? And people ask that like derogatorily these days. Well, how do you know who God is? Like, really? Are you kidding? He gave us his holy word. And uh, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the, the link to knowing the scripture, knowing the word of God is, is one of the main components, I think, of being a man of God. Otherwise, you don't really know what this looks like. Uh, what does a godly uh, a man look like? Uh, the characteristics are godlike. To, not that we'll become gods. That'll never happen. Um, but uh, to be more like God. We always say, you know, what would Jesus do? We want to be like Jesus. That's true. 
because Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Um, but I love how we have the comprehensive view of who God is in the Word of God. I think he's given us everything we need to know right here in the book. Uh, and so that's why studying the scriptures is so powerful. Um, faith, love, patience. How are you doing on patience? Um, meekness. Uh, meekness is not weakness, by the way. It's strength under control. Um, like a horse, you know, a horse is, is uh, what you might call, you know, especially like a, a horse that's been broke because, uh, you know, a horse could still kill you as a man. Uh, horses are powerful beasts, they, uh, you know, and, and yet uh, their strength and power only under control. Um, you know, that's, that's the idea of meekness. Um, and, and fighting the good fight of faith, realizing that we're in a battle, that's part of being a man of God, um, and that we're fighting a spiritual battle, not a weapons of our warfare that are carnal, but a spiritual tearing down a stronghold. The Bible talks about that. And then lay hold on eternal life. What does it mean to lay hold on something? You know, grab a hold, you know, of something. Uh, how do you grab a hold of eternal life? There's only one way to do that. Um, to be saved, to accept Jesus Christ as your savior, um, and then to have that heavenly mindset, to be a, a, a you know eternal perspective, not just about the here and now, but thinking about the bigger picture. That's part of a godly man. Um, a man of God lays hold on eternal life and recognizes the importance of the eternal life. Um, and, uh, and, and then Paul says, that's what you're called to, uh, Timothy, that's your calling. And you professed a good profession. Uh, Timothy was gonna be the pastor of Ephesus. If you know that, that was a tall order to be the pastor of that church. It'd be like being a pastor in Las Vegas or something. Um, that, was, that was Timothy's calling uh, and, uh, and he was to make that calling sure. So the first, the first one here is, um, you know, here in Timothy, uh, Paul talking to Timothy is, is a great description. This should be sort of a checklist for you and me, you know, just to say, Lord, how am I doing at being a man of God? The second time in, in the New Testament, also in the books of Timothy, is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Um, and I want you to see this one because the link to the scriptures, there's a huge, a man of God is directly linked to scripture. I got to stress that. I can't stress it enough. For all scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, there it is, the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Question, how are you guys doing at being perfect? Uh, you know, the, the, the man of God, according to this, uh, that he may be perfect. Now, I like this as maybe. Uh, the idea is, are you, are you there yet? Have any of us arrived to perfection? But I do want to point out a couple things about the wording here, because uh, the King Jimmy might put, turn up the heat to where you kind of like, well, good luck with that. Uh, I will never be a perfect man. Um, but um, the, the man of God being perfect, if you take a look at that word perfect, um, the word, the Greek word actually is a little more cl clear and maybe a little more, maybe if you could say attainable, but the word um, artios, which means qualified for a function, capable, efficient, proficient, competent. That's the word artios uh, in the Greek. So um, that the man of God might be qualified for a function, capable. Um, what makes the man of God functional, capable, proficient, and competent? To know the word of God that's inspired and uh, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for um, correction, for instruction in righteousness. Um, boy, this is where I think a lot of us as Christian uh, men in our culture uh, and world, we're, we're, we're dropping the ball. We're not equipped, uh, we're not capable, we're not proficient. Don't you love seeing some dude that's extremely proficient in his skill? Um, I remember when I was a hod carrier for a summer for a brick mason, and man, uh, it was one of the hardest jobs I ever had. Went into football season that year, probably in one of the best shape uh, conditions I was in, because I was carrying mud and block all, all summer long. Um, but, um, but all that to say, uh, the guy that I was working for, the, the Mason man, he was amazing. Like just to watch him at his skill, you know, buttering up a block and dropping it in. And he just, whoosh, 
like I, I just couldn't keep, keep him, uh, you know, set up with, with enough mud, enough blocks. I mean, it was just, I was running all day just trying to, because he was just so fast and his, his lines were always perfect. And it's just kind of cool seeing somebody who's really good at their skill. I, I remember my dad uh, with a skill saw. Is anybody really good with a skill saw? Uh, I, I've noticed that I've not seen a lot of guys that can use a skill saw like my dad. Uh, who needs a table saw or like a router or who needs it? My dad could just do that all, all that stuff with, a, with a, just a, a skill saw. He just used that. I remember just, um, you know, he would eyeball stuff, you know, and never, like he, he wouldn't even have to, I'd have to get out my square and draw a nice line and carefully, you know, he just, just every time perfectly square and just, just, you know, super fast with a skill saw. There's something about seeing someone who's proficient. That's the idea here, that, that a godly man, a man of God, is not a novice when it comes to the word of God that's, that's inspiration. It's, it's God-breathed. That's the word inspiration. God breathed his word. People think, oh, this is just a book written by men. No, 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 no. Men were the hand and the pen, but God inspired those words through the hand of those men to write the perfect um, word of God that's profitable for doctrine, which is teaching. Uh, for reproof and correction. You know, it should, it should, the word of God should be that lamp unto our feet, the light to our path, telling us whether to go right or left or stay on the straight path. You know, the word is that does that. The man of God might be um, artios, qualified, capable, efficient, proficient, and competent. Um, the, the, we've done a disservice, I think, in our churches in America because we'll tack on a scripture here and there. Um, but tacking on a scripture uh, to me, um, back to the skill saw. You guys know who you are. You've got your little Black & Decker uh, Sidewinder skill saw or whatever they call those. Uh, they're like toys, you know? And you think, I'm, I'm using a skill saw. But a, a person who really knows how to use a skill saw, um, they'd be kind of chuckling at the way you're using that, that saw because it's a joke. Um, but you're, th you know, you're the weekend warrior, uh, do-it-yourselfer kind of guy. I know, some of us, you know, you, you, you kind of, it's embarrassing. You don't want to admit that. But the guy that kind of knows what he's doing is kind of like, that's kind of embarrassing. Um, well, I wonder how many, how many preachers are using the little black and decker and they're tacking a scripture up on the ceiling or the wall, but they're not actually getting some heavy lifting done in the word of God, using the full counsel of the word of God. Um, that's why, you know, we say, let's, let's make a, a emphasis on verse by verse going through the Bible. We don't do that here at Ironworks. Uh, Ironworks is a little different. I, 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 this is the time we just, you know, once a month get together and talk about topics. Um, I'm doing what a lot of, uh, right now, I'm doing something that a lot of pastors do every Sunday. But, I, you know, I think we're poorer for that. I think um, people are starving for the word of God. And we need people, we need men who are skilled in the word of God and they know how to use it. And they're capable, proficient, competent, functioning fully. Um, that, that's the man of God uh, who's gonna, there's a link to the word. I'll show you that even in a picture here in a minute. Um, but then, then this, the, the final part of this verse, thoroughly furnished. Um, that's one word in the Greek. Uh, there's two words there, thoroughly furnished. Um, but the, um, uh, the, the Greek word is kind of interesting there, exartizo, which means uh, to make adequate or to be equipped. So not only are you capable, but you're also equipped. You, um, you, know, uh, you know how to use the sword and you have the sword. Um, that's the person that's gonna be ready to do good works and is called the man of God. Um, now, in the Old Testament, there's all kinds of, uh, you know, man of God uh, scriptures that we could talk about. Um, in fact, there's uh, a group of men, particularly in the Bible, that are known for being men of God. Um, uh, Moses was called a man of God over and over and over again. Maybe, uh, well, maybe six times. I, I did an informal count last night, um, uh, but, um, but um, maybe more than that. Um, but David was also called a man of God over and over again. Um, and, and then, uh, does anybody know who, there's another guy who's called man of God quite a bit. Anybody else know? Elijah, Elijah the prophet was called a man of God over and over and over again. And then of course, Timothy was uh, by Paul in the scripture I just showed you, um, you know, he's saying, uh, you're gonna be the man of God. That's the goal. So, um, so you know, we could look, uh, remember how we talk about how the Old Testament is a picture book of New Testament truths? I thought it'd be fun for us to go back to one of the guys that's called man of God um, more than just about anybody uh, and, and see what, what made him a man of God and maybe some, a, a good snapshot in the old picture book of the Old Testament uh, for us to kind of see as a model of what a man of God looks like. Wouldn't it be great? Not that we would ever pridefully say, wow, Aethi Creek's full of men of God. 
But if it was just true, wouldn't it be just something if Athe Creek became a, a church just, just full of men that were thoroughly furnished or um, exartizo, <laughs> equipped, and, um, and, and also qualified, you know, artios, uh, like Paul was longing for young Timothy to be that man, um, wouldn't it be something if the Athe Creek was just full? I think our families would be different. Our church would for sure be better. Um, maybe our communities uh, and maybe even our city would, if, if Athe Creek was just chock full of guys that said, man, that's my life goal, not for prideful. I'm a man of God, but um, just you are that. That's just what you are. You don't have to say it. Uh, nobody has to have to talk about it. It's just something that you really are. I think that would change, um, you know, our community, change our world a lot. Uh, the Lord wants to use men of God. That's that's clear in His Word. Well, let's take a look. In fact, uh, we'll, we'll take a look at Elijah. Um, but before we do that, uh, one little man of God scripture. I love this one. This is a good. You might jot this one down in your notes. Micah six eight. He hath showed the O man. Um, this is talking to the man that's, that's supposed to be the man of God. He has showed thee, O man, what is good and what the, doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. I mean, there's, there, this, you could do like just a whole through the Bible study on what a man of God is. Like, there's a lot of verses like this. I just wanted to kind of wet the whistle on some of these. So, so many people have different views on the, what, a, what qualities the man of God actually possesses. I think the scriptures that I've already given you gives us a huge uh, you know, set of, of uh, check boxes I think we could have, how we do and all those things. But, um, but one of the things we don't wanna be is the man of God that um, you know, is um, sort of uh, misguided. And I think there's guys that wanna be men of God and they do it, for, they do it in sort of artificial ways. Uh, sort of superimposing their 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 leadership or um, a misguided boldness or maybe trying to be seen as a man of God, guys walking around trying to be sort of holier than thou. That That's like the worst thing in the world. Um, I think what we need to do is just be men of God, not talk about it, not go around hoping people think that about us, but just be. And, and I think the guy that maybe best models that is Elijah. And let's turn to 1 Kings. Grab your Bible, turn to 1 Kings chapter 17, because there's, a, there's a, just a chapter here that I think it's kind of funny because the conclusion of the, of the chapter uh, is interesting. Um, you guys might know this passage. Um, uh, you know, right before, this is, this is before the Super Bowl in the Bible. Um, like a week before the Super Bowl, or a few years before the Super Bowl, actually. But um, what's the Super Bowl? Remember when Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal to a duel? It was like the Super Bowl of prophets, and uh, it was death uh, to, the, to the ones who lost. Um, and, you know, Elijah, that was chapter 18. Elijah uh, wins, the fire comes from heaven, and then he slays 450 prophets of Baal there um, on, um, on Mount Carmel there in Israel. So that's happening in the next chapter. But before that, um, we have a chapter, you know, where Elijah's got some interesting things going on. Um, and I want to show you those things, but let's, let's, let's read the end of the book or the end of the story before we do the beginning. Okay. Do you ever do that? Reading the end before let's sneak to verse 24 of chapter 17. It says, and the woman said to Elijah, now by this, I know that thou art a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in thy mouth. Can I just show you the link that we just talked about from Paul to Timothy, that the man of God that's thoroughly furnished, equipped, he's the one who understands the inspiration um, and the power of the word of God that's good for doctrine and for correction and reproof and instruction. Um, so the same thing is true here. This woman, at the end of the story that we're about to look at, she concludes saying, yeah, you're a man of God. And how do I know that? Um, is that the word of the Lord is, that's in your mouth is truth. That's gonna be one of the great signs of a man of God, if, if he's speaking powerful truth. And the only way we can really do that is to speak the word of God. I think that's, that's kind of powerful. So let's take a look. I, I wanna break this chapter down just a little bit. In verse one, let's start now at the beginning. Verse one, it says, And Elijah the Tishbite, uh, who was uh, of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. 
Now, the first thing that I wanna point out here in this story is the man of God, which we already know this chapter concludes that he is, and the Bible calls him a man of God over and over again, Elijah. Notice the first thing I wanna point out is a man of God has um, boldness. Um, that we are to be, if we're gonna be a man of God, we need to uh, show boldness. And uh, Elijah was bold, I love this. Um, you might say, well, what's the big deal? He's, he just stands before some guy and says it's not gonna rain. But you gotta understand this, this one guy, Ahab, is the king. And he's one of these kings that has the power to, um, you know, uh, say off with your head. Uh, that would be intimidating. Do you guys remember Baghdad Bob? If you're old enough, during the Gulf War, um, th there was a um, Iraqi spokesman for <laughs> Saddam Hussein. You remember? And it was, if it wasn't so tragic, it was it was hilarious. And the reason everybody laughed at Baghdad Bob, he's this guy who's just like, he would get in front of a camera during the war. You know, we were at, we're fighting against uh, Iraq, uh, and Baghdad Bob, the, the spokesperson for Saddam Hussein, would come out and just say stuff that was so outlandish and so ridiculous that wasn't even close to true um, about how wonderful Saddam was and how they're all winning the war and everything's going along perfectly. And uh, like, it, and we we would get those those video snippets back, and and it was just it was like this guy is totally ridiculous, but. If you, if you know the whole story, why was Baghdad Bob so positive about uh, Saddam Hussein? Anybody know? The, the idea is intimidation. Um, does anybody know how Saddam Hussein, if, he, if you're old enough, because uh, I think this was in 1979, if I remember right. Do you know how he came to power there in, in Iraq? Um, it happened sort of like this. Um, he basically came up to the president of uh, Iraq and said, you're no longer the president, I am. And the guy's like, okay. Now, the reason that happened is because uh, Saddam was good for, you know, he, he, he would kill you. Like, you're, you're stepping aside, I'm the new president. Well, like the next day, he goes into the big uh, you know, government building there um, in Iraq, and, um, and, uh, and it's like a, a room almost this size. Uh, but it's got, you know, uh, I think maybe a hundred of the top leaders in his country. And he's the new leader by telling the other guy, I'm, you're stepping down because I'm going to kill you. You know, that kind of thing. Well, anyway, so Saddam walks in and he says, oh, brothers, we have a very tragic, tragic thing going on here. Um, and he says, I'm really sorry to say, but, and then he names some guy, Muhammad Madullah Subdullah Balala. Um, uh, he has betrayed us. And, and Muhammad Balala, he, he gets up and he says, I, I, oh, Saddam, you are, I am loyal to you. He said, nope, you are not loyal. And, and soldiers came in and dragged him out. No, and he's yelling, you know, I, I, I'm a faithful, and they drag him off. Um, and, and, um, and then he just says, oh, it's very sad. And he sits down in the chair in front of all these guys, lights up a big Cuban cigar. And for two hours, he says, you know, there's another one here in our ranks who is uh, uh, not faithful to our, our beloved country. And he names another guy, you know, um, you know and, 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 uh, and he just starts just slowly, methodically naming. And by the end of the time, 60 men were dragged out of the room. Um, 20 of them were shot in the head right after they dragged him out. Uh, the others were put in prison. Um, but uh, you say, well, Brett, what does that have to do with the story? Well, Saddam Hussein was nice compared to Ahab. Can you imagine the intimidation of being in that kind of a situation? Like, like we in America, we, you know, I, I think it's hilarious how we, we throw the dumb accusation. Every president that gets in office, whether it's a Democrat or Republican, the other side is always saying, he's like Adolf Hitler. I always, I always hate when people compare uh, any of our leaders to Adolf Hitler because nobody's even close to Adolf Hitler. No one. Uh, he killed six million Jews. Like he was, a, uh, it was a horror. But, but you know, that's just kind of we, we just over exaggerate. You know, too much Instagram. I think TikTok and stuff like that. But there's there's people that you, you know to get up in front of a leader and stand your ground. Ahab was that kind of guy. He would he enjoyed saying off with your head. So for for you know, Elijah to stand in front of Ahab. And basically he's, he's, he's saying the Lord God of Israel, he says, before whom I stand. You see, this is what the man of God does. He understands he's standing before the Lord God before he's standing before some king in Israel. And this is something that a man of God does. And I wonder, I hope you and I have that kind of a worldview. 
to be more concerned about what the God of heaven, the one we're standing before, um, what he feels about what we're doing more than what everybody else thinks about what we're doing or even things that we might be fearful about. Oh man, it's sad to see how fear has gripped our country and men, men have become fearful. We used to be the land of the free, home of the brave. Uh, now that we're uh, the land of the vaccinated and home of the, uh, you know, um, you know, like it's, 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 it's embarrassing uh, how fearful we have become. And we're, we're running around like little ninnies, it's, it seems. But the, the truth is, um, I love the boldness here. Now, boldness is um, what's really interesting um, because uh, many people have, uh, you know, different views on this quality of boldness. But one of the things that shouldn't be as pushy or over assertive or prideful. Um, the idea at the end of the day, boldness is centered on Christ and it requires humility. You see, I love this in Elijah. The, the reason he's saying this, not because he's just being a big shot and he's gonna you know, call Ahab out because he's, he's cool and he's not afraid of that, but he's, he's actually got the fear of the Lord in him. That's the deal. He actually cares more about what God is because he says, um, as, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand. That's where his boldness comes from. He's being bold because God has called him to be bold, not just for the sake of boldness or pride or whatever. So at the end of the day, true boldness is centered on Christ, requires humility rather than pride. Um, uh, so one of the things you should be careful is, you know, boldness can very quickly turn into ugliness and pridefulness if we're not um, doing it the way the Lord would have us to do it. So in our, I believe in our world, we need more men that are, that are bold. Don't forget what Proverbs says there uh, in Proverbs 28.1, the wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Um, that's something I think, I wonder if the Lord's gonna require that of you as brothers in modern times, where the Lord's gonna require it of you and me to be bold in our faith um, and not try to waffle or try to you know, hide our faith or try to just stay out of trouble by not saying certain things. I, I wonder if the Lord's gonna require us in, in these next, uh, this next season or years for us to you know, be bold. Uh, man, read Fox's Book of Martyrs of the early church and the Christians in the first 300 years. Um, some of these people um, were uh, bold like nobody's business. And it, it, it kind of makes you feel wimpy when you read some of these stories of, of our brothers and sisters who were before us, who died martyrs' deaths because they were unafraid to say, Jesus is Lord. Um, so that's the first characteristic I love, I see in Elijah, and as a man of God, he's bold. The second characteristic that uh, Elijah has is he's obedient, and that's verses two through seven. Let's take a look. It says here in verse uh, two, and the word of the Lord came unto him saying, get thee hence and turn thee eastward and hide thyself by the brook Kirith, or Kirith, um, that is before Jordan. And it shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook and uh, I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord for he went and dwelt by the brook, Kerith, um, that uh, is before Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning and bread and flesh in the evening. And he drank of the brook. And it came to pass after a while that, he, that the, the, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Um, so interesting. Um, now this place um, uh, is, is an interesting, the, the name, uh, uh, you know, Karit, it means, uh, we, we would say Cherith, uh, but it's actually more of a Karit. Um, but um, it means cutting or separation. So it's kind of an interesting name of a place. It's almost like the Lord said, I'm gonna cut you out of the normal society and put you in a place of isolation. Um, and separation, that's the name of this place. Um, you know, it's like Menachal Libre going into the wilderness. Uh, that's, now we got Elijah out there in the wilderness and he, he was more than like 20 feet from town. Um, this was way out there. Uh, in fact, I've driven through Kirit, that whole area, and it's as desolate as you can imagine. It looks like there's not a weed on the ground. It's just rocks and barrenness. It's just total desert. Um, now, another thing that's kind of funny, so, so here's a good, you know, uh, you know, guy that's like a prophet of the Lord, um, you know, a Jew. Uh, and yet what's interesting about this Jewish guy, um, ravens are feeding him. Is that a very Jewish thing, dealing with ravens? 
Um, remember, ravens were a dirty bird, if, if you know what I mean. Uh, they were called defiled, dirty birds in the uh, law of the Jews. So now he's out in the wilderness being fed by these dirty birds. Like that was, that was a thing for the Jews. That would be kind of like, you know, bummer. Why are these ravens? You know, the raven was an unclean bird. Deuteronomy 14, 14 declared that. But also um, the raven, you know, doesn't even care for itself. If you read Job chapter 38, verse 41, um, the the, the Lord kind of talks about how he has to care for the ravens because they're just not very good at caring for themselves. So here's the raven that is a dirty bird and doesn't even know how to care for itself. And it's caring for Elijah. Uh, and, And then he's got, well, at least I got a little brook here in the middle of nowhere. That's a good thing. And then all of a sudden the brook goes dry. Have you ever felt like the Lord has led you to Kareet? Where you're like, man, I don't know if I like my situation. And the, why, why did the Lord call me out to this situation? Um, one of the things that I love about Elijah is he just did what the Lord told him to do. Even though none of this makes Jewish sense, none of this makes sense for a powerful prophet of the Lord. Um, he, you know, in my mind, I think, well, man, this is Elijah the prophet. He should be off doing something amazing. Um, Lord, use this guy. He's Mr. Talent. Um, he's going to call fire from heaven. Let's get him busy with the fire, you know, thing. Um, I've noticed that before a man can be used greatly, oftentimes he needs to be broken deeply before uh, any of the good stuff happens. Um, you always see this pattern. Moses had to, you know, spend 40 years on the backside of the desert before he would be the leader of Israel. Um, even Paul the apostle had to go out in the backside of the deserts of Arabia. Even Jesus had to go out in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, tempted of the devil. Like um, they all had their desert times. Um, and this is sort of Elijah's desert time. But I like that Elijah's obedient. He, it says right there, verse five, so he went and did according to the word of the Lord. And when you do what God's calling you to do, even if it's not fun and you feel like you're cut off and separated from reason and logic, um, the Lord is still faithful to do that. Uh, when was the last time you did something that didn't make sense because you felt a stirring in your heart that the Lord was calling you to do something? I, I worry when my life is so predictable and I'm just doing what I like to do, I start to worry, Lord, is there, is there something that I'm, I'm, do, I'm not doing that you would have me to do? I start to get worried when things are going along really smoothly and easily. And, uh, you know, I kind of wonder, Lord, am I missing? Because sometimes I think the Lord will allow us to go through these times. And what he's looking for is obedience. Um, Peter T. Forsyth was right when he said, the first duty of every soul is to find not its freedom, but its master. Um, I think that's an interesting uh, thing. You know, we're all about freedom, which I'm glad we're, you know, we're supposed to be the land of the free and the home of the brave. Um, and we do value our freedom, at least some of us still do. Um, but interesting, you know, one of the things I've noticed in, in a younger generation, you know, they're all about the freedom part, but without the responsibility, or actually, you know, it's the old Bob Dylan song, you know, you're gonna have to serve somebody. Somebody's gonna be your master, whether it's, you know, the devil or the Lord, you know, it's, you're gonna have to serve somebody. And, and so the, the, the great thing is for the man of God to sort of realize the master is the Lord. I'm gonna do whatever the Lord tells me to do and I'm gonna be obedient to his word. Um, what an important thing about that. Imagine, um, uh, uh, you, know, uh, um, you know, you work for a company, uh, the president uh, founded it, uh, made it successful, um, but he had to go on a long journey for a couple of years. And so he left you and the team in charge of this company that's successful and very wealthy, doing good, um, he says, I'm going to leave. I'm, when I'm gone, I, I want you to pay close attention to the business and, and manage things in my absence. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to send you letters and I'm going to give you kind of the how-to and what to do and make sure you follow those letters and, you know, keep them, you know, read them. And they're like, yeah, 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 whatever. That's great. Sounds good. So the guy goes off um, and two years, writes letters and, you know, sends them. Well, two years later, he gets back to the corporation and man, when he walks in, the place is a dump. And the first thing he comes in, the secretary, she's watching YouTube on the screen and, and you know, filing her nails and, and there's trash laying around and, and goes in the warehouse and there's just empty shelves and stuff. And guys are messing around with a forklift, just kind of playing around. And, and there's just there's no business happening. And, and uh, he just can't believe his eyes what's, what he sees. And so he calls all the employees and says, 
you guys, what have you done? And, and um, they said, oh man, you know, he said, didn't you get my letters? I said, oh, sure. Yeah, we got all your letters, you know. Um, uh, we, we bound them. We, when we, we'd, we'd bind them and we opened them and we bound them in a book and we made little scrapbooks of all your letters. And some of us even memorized your letters. We, we've got um, letter memorization. Um, in fact, we even have a letter study on Wednesday night. And, and on Wednesday night, we go through all the letters over and over again. Um, and, uh, and even sometimes on Sundays, we, we go through your letters. Um, you know, they were really great letters. Oh, we love your letters. But, but the president would ask, you know, but what did you do about my instructions? Um, and, and they say, oh, well, nothing. We, but we read every single one of them. My point is clear, I think. I wonder how many of us have memorized scripture and we do Bible study, but are we doers of the word, obedient to the word? Ah, just because we've taken the notes and attended the Wednesday night, and just because we have a scripture memorized does not mean we've done it or, you know, have that nailed down. Um, I wonder if the Lord's going to come back in his return and find a kind of a mess. I hope that at Athe Creek, he finds doers, men that are doers of the word. Well, obedience is the key. So a man of God, bold, faithful, and, um, pardon me, obedient. And then number three, faithful, faithful. Uh, check this out, verse eight. And the word of the Lord came to him. Now, you know, he's, he's at Kerit with a dried up brook. Now what do you do? Um, so the Lord comes to him and says, verse nine, arise, get thee to Zarephath. Uh, where, uh, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. So he arose and went to Zarephath. Uh, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow woman was there gathering of sticks. And he called to her and said, fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to fetch it, he called to her and said, bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thine hand. And she said, as the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake, but a handful of meal in a barrel and a little oil in a cruise. And behold, I am gathering two sticks that I may go in and dress it for me and my son, that then we may eat it and die. And Elijah said unto her, fear not, go and do as thou hast said, but make me thereof a little cake first and bring it unto me, and after make for thee uh, and for thy son. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, the barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruise of oil fail, until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. Um, remember, you know, the first thing that we read in verse one is, you know, uh, Elijah told Ahab, um, you know, it's not gonna rain, um, for years. Uh, so this is the famine. Now people are dying and food is scarce because of the famine that Elijah sort of caused, if you would. Um, and so this poor widow woman, she's got a little handful of flour and a few drops of oil. She's going to mix together, make some kind of a cake, uh, you know, um, and then eat it. And that's all they've got. She knows they're dead after that. They're going to die of starvation. Um, but Elijah, wow, he does this thing um, that's, that's kind of interesting. Now, um, before we get into the actual you know, miracle part of this, um, let's talk about Zarephath. Um, there's a famous person from Zarephath. Anybody know who she is in the story? Jezebel. Jezebel. Uh, if you know the story, um, she's kind of the last person you want to bump into, if you know what I mean. Um, Jezebel sort of was like uh, more powerful than Ahab in some ways. Um, she's the one that had her 450 prophets of Baal. Um, she was as pagan and evil as it comes. Maybe you know that. I, I've noticed that in all the babies I've dedicated and all the pregnant ladies and people in our church, nobody's named their daughter Jezebel um, or, you know, things like that. It's, it's a name that's not super popular. Uh, why? Because of Jezebel, the Bible. She was totally wicked. Um, but Zarephath was Jezebel's hometown, um, and what was she wanting to do? If you know the story, she was wanting to kill all the prophets of the Lord. Um, now, this is again, not only was he bold in front of Ahab and he was obedient to go to Kerit, but now he's being faithful um, to do what God's called him to do, even going to a very dangerous place. Uh, Zarephath was not only where Jezebel was from, but it was also the, sort of the epicenter of Baal worship. 
Um, which is kind of funny because um, does anybody know which God in that culture of Sidon and, uh, uh, um, you, know, uh, you know, the Tyre and Sidon, they, had, they were kind of big Baal worshipers. But who was the God that was most in, important when it came to rain and, and crops and success? It was Baal. <laughs> Baal. So it's kind of funny. Baal's not serving him so well right now because Elijah stopped the faucet from rain. I think that's kind of funny. Like, this is funny stuff. Elijah's like, oh yeah, you just want to go ahead and worship Baal, but I'll show you who's in control of the rain. And it's not your dumb God. It's actually the true and living God. Um, but Baal worship, the epicenter of where the weather, you know, was supposed to be blessed by weight worshiping Baal, um, it's, it's Zarephath. That's like the epicenter of all this. Um, do you ever wonder why the Lord allows you to be at Zarephath? Some of you might be in the dry desert of Kareth, but some of you feel like, Lord, you sent me to the epicenter of wickedness. I have to work for Nike. <laughs> or, or, or maybe you work for a company that's extremely woke and you, you know, you're getting all these in-office in emails about how Bill is no longer Bill. We're gonna call him her Bertha and you know, he, she, they, them, Z, 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 B, 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 whatever the thing they're doing. Um, ridiculous. It's totally ridiculous. And, and you feel like, Lord, why am I even here? Um, but um, I, I do think it's interesting. The Lord sent Elijah to the epicenter of Baal worship. Uh, it, was, it was not a, I'm sure it wasn't his first choice to say, yeah, let's go to Jerephath. It's like, this is kind of where you don't want to go if you're, if you're Elijah the prophet. It's where they want to kill the prophets of God and it's where they worship Baal. Um, but could God be using Elijah to do something greater, demonstrating you know, his faithfulness? But as he does that, it shows um, Elijah's faithfulness just to do and, and you know, follow the Lord's lead and to be faithful to serve no matter what situation he's in. And I, I wonder if that's part of the lesson here. As a man of God, he's faithful, just serving the Lord, being consistent. Well, um, you know, faithful to trust the Lord as well, because I mean, um, you know, this is, this is kind of a dubious situation, this poor starving widow and her son. And now he's saying, feed me first. Uh, but Elijah knows what's going to happen. He says, man, your, your oil will not run out and your barrel of flour will not go dry, you know, empty. Um, he's, he's declaring something faithfully saying, it's all going to work out. Um, the faithful man knows that God's going to work it all out. Um, God, the faithful man is faithful because he knows that God is even more faithful still. And I think that's the difference between Elijah and a lot of us. Sometimes we're, oh, Lord, are you really gonna do this? Are you really gonna take care of this situation? Are you sure? You know, we, we, we become faithless. But I love how uh, Elijah is faithful. This is a mark of a man of God. By the way, interesting, the word uh, Zarephath, it means refinery, refinery. And I think sometimes the Lord uses the Zarephaths in our life, whether it's Intel or Nike or the construction site you work on or, or you know, the, the people you have to work with or whatever, sometimes the Lord's using those things to be the refiner's fire uh, in your life to shape you and, and, and make you the man of God that he wants you to be. Um, some of you might mistakenly think, how can I be a man of God working at this place? Or how can I be a man of God going to this college or university? You know, how can I do this or how can I do that? And we almost use it as an excuse of why we're not gonna be a man of God. But a true man of God, it says, I'm gonna use my circumstances, my situation, and it's gonna be a good test for me uh, whether I'm gonna remain faithful and stick to the word of God or if I'm gonna bail and just go with the flow of the world. That's, that's, that's the big question. So uh, number three, uh, mark of a godly man, a man of God is faithful. So you got uh, bold, uh, number one. Um, you've got um, obedient, you've got faithful, number three. But number four on the list, we see powerful. Uh, this is an important one, number four, verses 15 and 16, uh, and really the rest of the chapter, honestly, but verse 15, and she went and did according to the saying of Elijah, and she and he and her house did eat many days. Um, uh, you might see in your margin there, uh, next to the many days, uh, it says a full year. So she only had a handful of flour and a drop of oil, and it, all that lasted. This is like the feeding of the 5,000. The more she poured out the meal, the more it just kept refilling. Um, that's pretty cool. I wish that would happen today, especially with the grocery prices. Uh, um, fill up your tank and it just keep, you know, you, you don't have to fill it up anymore. It's like, that'd be great. Lord, you know, miracles, these are great. Well, the barrel, verse 16, of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail according to the word of the Lord, 
which he spake by Elijah. Notice it's the word of the Lord that Elijah spoke. It wasn't Elijah's word. Uh, A man of God is speaking the word of God. And remember, she acknowledges in verse 24, this you are a man of God, that the word of the Lord was in your mouth and it was true. That, that's the mark. That's, I'm gonna say that's the number one mark of a man of God. And we're seeing that all through this story. Um, but powerful, um, miracles were happening. Um, this is something that I wonder, do we tap into the power? Um, and sh- you know, should we have power? I heard a, um, a, a snippet of a sermon the other day where God, some guy said, you know, who heals, God or, or, or am I the one who's gonna heal people or does God heal? And the people said, God. And he said, nope, I am the one who's gonna heal. I was like, this is so stupid. There, there's, like this, there's like this move to sort of say, I am greater. I am like the, in, in the church today, watch out for diminishing God, diminishing Jesus and putting ourselves in some place of greatness. It's one of the worst things happening in the church today. Uh, you can see it in a lot of the more charismatic type churches. They, some of them are doing that, you know, the Bethels. It's diminish Jesus, diminish God, but it's all about me and my power. Uh, that's, not, that's not what I'm saying here today. Um, I'm going to say you and I have nothing to offer, zero power. Without the Lord, how much do you have? Nothing. We got zip, zero, zilch. We're nothing apart from God. God is the only source where we can receive power. But good news, the most powerful being in all the cosmos says, I want to give you power. In fact, remember what, uh, you know, uh, Jesus promised. This, these are Jesus's words in Acts chapter one, verse eight. Um, but you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. Um, by the way, our cessationist friends, you know, the, those that don't believe in the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in modern church age, um, I find it interesting, you know, here's Jesus saying, you're gonna receive power but if it was only for the you know, first you know, few decades of the early church, for the you know, tongues and prophecy and you know, manifestation of the Holy Spirit, then why does he include the results of that power is only gonna be just locally? No, it's gonna go from Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth, uh, even Portlandia. Um, that's where we need some power of God is right here and the Holy Spirit to come upon us um, as believers. Um, and we shouldn't do things by our own might, nor by our own power, but, but by how? The by the spirit of the living God, saith the Lord of hosts. That's what the scriptures say. So, we, um, you know, we'll even see more power uh, in this chapter. You know, Elijah was sort of the um, poster child of the Old Testament of power. You know, Moses, his name was synonymous with the law. Every time I think of Moses, I see him with his 10 commandments and the law, like, like the Jews knew Moses as the law giver. But man, I, Elijah, I, I almost picture him walking around with little lightning bolts kind of sparking out of the end of his fingers. You know, like, like this guy had the power of God flowing through his veins, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, he's calling fire from heaven. He's gonna raise dead people to life. He's gonna make this food last, you know, that we see here in this chapter. Um, but one of the things that, uh, you know, we need is to be men of the word, but we also need to have, have the power. Now, this is where the word and, and power goes hand in hand. Power and authority goes hand in hand. You know, you might have, you know, a uh, Dodge TRX pickup with 700 horse. You got the power. And there you are at Tualatin, standing at the light in Nyberg. 700 horses under that hood. Um, and, uh, and yet, you know what? You're totally impotent and weak. Why? Because it's a red light. You don't have the authority. Um, you need power and authority before you're going to put, put some uh, muscle to that. Um, see, and, and that's the way it goes as a Christian. We, we, we have the power of the Holy Spirit, but the key is to make sure that you have the authority. And that, where do we find the authority? The Word of God. The, the Word, the Word, the Word. Um, that's where, by the way, some of our charismatic friends uh, go a little crazy. They, they sort of go outside of the authority of the Word of God. Um, so we, we need to be kind of careful with that one. We definitely want to be men of the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit. But we also want to do that which the Bible tells us is good. Um, I think there's been a lot of people have been turned off to even the idea of the Holy Spirit because of abuses, people flopping around on the floor and you know doing all kinds of weird stuff. None of that's in the Bible. That's just ridiculous stuff. First Babylonians is where all that came from. Um, let's do that which the Bible actually tells us we're to do. And, and when it says about the Holy Spirit, 
I, I just tell you that your, your owner's manual of how the Holy Spirit's supposed to work in the church is 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Let all things be done decently and in order. Um, and uh, our Baptist friends are saying, decently and in order. Our Pentecostal friends are saying, let all things be done. Um, but I think it's that blend between the two. I'm sort of a Baptist-costal, um, uh, uh, Bapticostal or whatever. Uh, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a charismatic with a safety belt. And the safety belt is the word of God. But oh, the church is poorer because we're lacking both in so many ways. The authority, we, we lack the authority of the word of God, but even worse, we lack the power of the Holy Spirit. If you don't have either of those, you, you kind of are gonna be impotent and weak. Um, the man of God is thoroughly furnished. And how, what is he furnished with? The word of God, but also the power of the Holy Spirit. So we see that obviously in, in Elijah. Uh, we'll see more power flowing through his veins by the spirit of God. It's not his own power, but it's by the Lord. Um, but um, the, the last part of this, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna show you, and th this is something because I've, I've known men that have all, uh, you know, um, five of the things, or what are we on? Um, you know, all four of the things that we've talked about. Um, could you be a person that's number one, bold, number two, obedient, um, number three, faithful, and number four, powerful, but I still might not like you. I've met people that have those four things, but you're kind of an unlikable dude. Um, because if you're missing the last one that we see here, um, you're not gonna be a very nice dude to be around. I wouldn't wanna be around you if you just had those components. Um, you know, if, if you're bold, you can become kind of a jerk and prideful uh, only. Uh, if you're obedient, you can become sort of sanctimonious, more you know, holier than thou kind of thing. If you're faithful, um, you know, you can sort of, you know, think you're better than everybody else as everybody else is faithless. If you're powerful, you, um, you can start thinking you're a little weird and acting kind of strange. But what is the last one? I'm gonna call this one compassionate. Um, this is one, you know, with, you, can, you can speak with the tongues of men and angels, but if you don't have love, you're like a big gong show, it says in verse, first, first Corinthians 13. Uh, if, you got, if you don't have love, you've, you've got nothing. So this, 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 you can say compassion or, or charity or love. I think we see that demonstrated here uh, at, at the end of this chapter. Verse 17, and it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house fell sick. So this little boy is sick. Um, and his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Now, now here's the part. She, why doesn't she like the man of God? She doesn't see, um, at this point, it's, she's thinking wrongly that he doesn't care about her or her son. You know, so what do I have to do, you man of God? Like being a man of God, she's not actually using this as a compliment at this point. Um, that's coming at verse 24. But she right now is like, oh, man of God, get out of my house. Like, I, no, you know, my son is dead. What good has this done for me? You know? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance? Remember the sanctimonious thing I was talking about? Because remember, Elijah's pretty dialed in. He is, he is kind of holier than thou, technically. And what are you trying to do? Just point out my sin? I wonder if this poor woman <clears throat> had some sins in her past that she was sure that she was being punished for. If you're a believer in God, if you're a follower of Jesus and a Christian, um, does the Lord punish you for your sins? No. The answer is no. Uh, he'll, he'll, you know, use troubles to redirect or to uh, maybe, uh, you know, uh, re, you know, can, as disciplinary, not punitive, um, but corrective. The Lord will correct you with, with bad things in our lives and stuff, but he's not punishing you for your sins. The, the punishment for sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And um, if you're being punished for your sins, you're, you're dead and you're burning in hell. That, that's punishment for sin. But... Um, Good news, Jesus died on the cross for our sins that we might have eternal life through Christ. So don't make the mistake. I think that that's what this woman's doing. She's, she's saying, man, I, I'm sure that it's my previous sins that have caught up to me that this is, you know, and you're, you're Mr. Holier than thou, Mr. Man of God. You know, like you can tell she's a little bit bummed by this. Like I said, nobody likes the sanctimonious man of God, but she's about to see the other side of this man of God that I think we all need to have if we're gonna call ourselves or hope to be a man of God. 
Um, so she says, what am I to do with thee, O man of God? Thou art come to me to call my sin, to repent remembrance and slay my son? And he said unto her, give me thy son. And he took him out of her bosom and carried him up into a loft where he abode and laid him upon his own bed. And notice kind of how this goes out. I, I sense a passion or compassion uh, demonstrated by the man of God, verse 20. And he cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourn by slaying her son? Now this is where I think a man of God, I, I love this because so far Elijah's kind of perfect in the story, but right here you kind of see him questioning, Lord, what's going on here? Like, really? Have you ever felt like that with the Lord? Like, are you kidding me, Lord? Uh, this this is what's going on right now. I've been serving you faithfully and this is what I get. Like, I, I, I do appreciate that even Elijah the prophet's kind of like, man, this is a hard one. But he's doing the right thing. And this is what you need to do and I need to do. When we find ourselves going, come on, Lord, really? Instead of just whining, crying out to the Lord for help is the answer. You know, he is the, the one who's the one who saves us. He will never let the righteous fall. He'll never let your foot be moved off the rock and our foundation. Um, so I love how and he's doing the right thing. Oh Lord, my God, he cries out to the Lord. Verse 21, and then he stretched himself upon the child three times um, and cried unto the Lord and said, oh Lord, my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come into him again. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down out of the chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, thy son liveth. I like this. Elijah doesn't just kind of go, well, I'll say, I'll throw up a prayer for your son, you know. Um, there's a, a, a passionate crying out to the Lord and even a, a demonstrative, um, you know, he, he's stretching him. The, the, the margin says he measured out. It's almost like he, he, he sort of measured out the son saying, uh, I, I care so much about this guy. And three times he sort of um, humbles himself before God and says, Lord, bring this, this boy back to life. Um, I, I sometimes worry that our inactivity and our just sort of passivity, just kind of saying, eh, you know, the Lord is going to do what he's going to do. Um, we sort of lack, um, you know, the, the, the zeal that I think God requires. Um, so all that to say, uh, I see a compassionate prophet who's not sanctimonious. And he's not letting this poor woman think that she's being judged for her sin. Uh, he's not sanctimonious at all, but he's compassionate on her son, does this whole thing to, uh, to cry out to the Lord for him. That's what we should do. And by the way, there's a lot of dead people laying around that need to be revived. We are born in sin, born in death, but the Lord wants us to stretch ourselves out and to be sharers of the gospel. Um, and, uh, you know, crying out to the Lord for people that are dead, walking zombies spiritually. Jesus said, you must be born again. You were born in sin. You need to be born again into life. And that's what you and I as men of God are called to do. What Elijah's doing here is something we're supposed to do, but maybe not, you know, bringing dead people back to life in the hospital. Um, but it's, it's for sure the Lord is saying, but I want you to bring spiritually dead people back to life. That's for sure. That's what we're all called to do. That's what it means to go out into all the world, preach the gospel. But do, are we lifting a pinky to do that? Uh, I like the, the energy that Elijah puts into this as he stretches himself over this kid three times, carries him up into the, you know, the, the loft, brings him back down alive to the mother. I love this. Uh, it's a good picture of what you and I should do. And so with all that, the woman concludes in verse 24. The woman said to Elijah, now by this I know that thou art a man of God and the word of the Lord is in, uh, in thy mouth is truth. Man, that would be so great if we would you know, just take these. This is just one little story of a man of God. We could, we could have done a study of Mo Moses and his man of God characteristics, as he's called a man, or David, a man of God. Um, you know, it's interesting because Jesus is almost hard to see in this because he is, he is a man who is God. So that, that's, you're like, well, that's Jesus. Um, and you know, Jesus was perfect. And sometimes, you know, we might have a hard time relating to perfection like that, but we still should look at Jesus as our, our goal. But I do like seeing these sort of flawed guys like Elijah, David, Moses, they were flawed, but they were still called men of God in the Bible. 
I wonder if perhaps the Lord would have you just kind of take a, a little bit of an evaluation. Would I ever be accused of being a man of God? Would anybody ever accuse me of that? Um, or, or, or would people say, oh, a man of God, are you kidding? Like not even close. Like, are, are you a, a man of, if people, if, if your wife were, if you're married, if, if your wife came up and I said, give me in a couple words, what kind of man is your husband? What, what would she say? Oh, well, he's a man of NFL. He loves the NFL. Man, he's got his friends coming over and his uh, Philly cheesesteaks and ready to go. Man, he loves the NFL. Um, not, nothing wrong with loving, you know, football um, uh, and stuff. Uh, oh, he's a man of fishermen. Man, he's a fisherman. Or he's into golf. That's all great. That's all great. But wouldn't it be something if the first thing that came out of your wife's mouth, oh man, he's, he's a man of God. My husband is a man of God. Um, now, um, I think a lot of us would say, yeah, my, probably the last thing my wife would say about me. You know, I, I think there's, she did a lot of things, but that wouldn't be one of them. But wouldn't it be something if, that, if that's kind of like, Lord, make me to be a guy that, you know, I, I grew up around these guys that were truly men of God. Um, I remember one of the godliest men I grew up around was a, was a little dude. He, was, he had a big beard down to here. Uh, man, uh, I don't understand that, but uh, no, he, Tom, Tom Patrick, he, he, he was just this kind of, he was kind of this little hippie dude. Uh, he'd, he'd, he'd become a Christian uh, in the 70s, 60s, I think, when, uh, you know, the hippie movement and all that. <clears throat> but um, he, he was just this really nice, kind-hearted guy. But man, he was just this guy that every time I saw him, it was, it's like he was one of these guys who didn't have a lot to say, but when he did say something, it was something godly coming out of his mouth every time. Um, I remember when I first really got to know Tom, uh, me and my buddy Kirk Daly, we were just kids sitting in church. And we were sitting in church. We were, our church was outside uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a park. Uh, we probably had 300 people and it was, we, were, we were sitting on the grass. And, but me and Kirk, my buddy, we were listening to the sermon, but we were also goofing around during the service. And um, I remember uh, we, would, we would flick flick sticks at each other and stuff like that uh, during church. All of a sudden, I, I feel this little thing on the back of my head. It's just a little, little knock, and I was like, what was that? And I turned around, and, um, and there's Tom Patrick, who's one of the elders of the church. And he's leaning up against a tree, and, and he looks at me, and he just kind of gives me this sort of godly smile. And I thought, oh, what, is he messing around with me? Like, is he wanting to play on the throwing the stick thing? Is he, is he, what's going on? You know, I remember thinking of that, and so I threw another stick at my friend Kirk, and all of a sudden, poof, it was a little bigger stick on the back of my head. And I turned around and there's Tom looking at me. I'm like, I still don't, I'm not sure if he's, you know. So I throw another stick at Kirk and pretty soon, poof, there was like a log that he threw on and hit my head. Um, and there's Tom just looking at me going, you know, and I realized at that moment, uh, no, but, but, uh, but that was just Tom bringing a little order into the service because of a goofball like Brett. Um, so all the distractions we have at our church, our church services, I deserve every one of them. I was the cause of that when I was a kid. But as I grew up to know Tom, Tom was just the guy, I remember, you know, I became an elder in the church at the ripe old age of 19. Um, and I remember sitting in elders meetings, just, just you know, um, and I'd see guys talk, you know, and, and there's some guys who would just talk, but I wouldn't, as a 19-year-old as a kid, I, I wouldn't call that guy necessarily a man of God. Oh, he's a nice guy, had some good business acumen. Uh, he, he was wealthy or successful or, you know, had a nice family. But, but, but Tom, when, when Tom would say something in an elders meeting, it was just kind of like you'd hear the angels sing or something, you know? It was like, oh, Tom's talking. And, and it just, you just knew the words that he thought were prayed through, thought through, backed with scripture. <clears throat> and so, so I, I just remember that was one of the first guys that I thought, that is like one of the most godly men I've ever met. And, uh, and, uh, and then I started kind of seeing that in, in guys, you know, my dad, my pastor, seeing godly men function in a way that was different. And it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't sort of what the world deems as a godly, you know, man of God. Um, have you ever noticed in all the movies, it's the preachers. I, that's why I started out with all those dumb pictures. It's always the preachers and the pastors and the priests that are always the dumbest guys in the movie. Um, because, because of course, all ministers are nitwits and all of you guys are like, hey, amen. Um, but they are. Have you ever noticed that? But that's, 
that's, I think that's just the enemy wanting to kind of have the projection of, of, of what a, a man of God, well, he's a goofball and you don't, definitely don't want to be that. But man, I wish all you guys could see how Tom Patrick rolled. When I was a kid, you'd just be like, that, that there is a man of God. And, and I, I pray for that. We need more godly men who will stand out and say, we're not gonna do this pridefully or arrogantly or you know, boldness isn't pridefulness, but, but to be bold, to be faithful, to be men of the word that knows the word of God is truth and it's inspired and infallible and that we stand on the word of God. So that people say, wow, when, when that guy says something from the word or that's biblically sound, in truth, he's a man of God because he's speaking the word of God. Um, that's what we need here at Athey Creek. More men of God, not acting holier, holier than thou, but just being men of God, like just literally living and being. Um, would you just join me this morning? Let's pray that in. Let's pray right now that the Lord will help us with that one because we need that in a day of godlessness. We need more men of God. Lord, I do pray blessing upon my brothers this morning. Um, it's, it's fun. You've given us so much that we can do and things that we're into and hobbies and things that we've focused really much of our lives on and, and um, we're, we're thankful for the, all those things. But I pray in these days that we live, Lord, they seem to be days of gravity and importance. Um, Lord, we, we find a lack of men that are leading in godliness. We find the need for, for the description that Paul gave to Timothy of what a godly man looks like. And, and um, Lord, I pray that you just start right here with each one of us. Um, show us what it means to be men of God, men of maturity, men of your word. Um, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just fall prey to just the, the typical um, route so many men take. Um, but Lord, I pray that we'd rise above that and that we would follow your word when it comes to these descriptions of what a man of God looks like. So bless my brothers, Lord. I pray that we would just find ourselves walking with you in obedience, even if it's at, at Karit, where the brook seems to be running dry and the ravens are feeding us, um, or, or Lord, wherever you, you, you guide us. May we be obedient, faithful, serving you, following you, walking with you. And like I prayed earlier, when the spirit is willing, <clears throat> but the flesh is weak, <clears throat> Lord, give us strength. Strengthen my brothers, and we just give our lives afresh to you on this, this Saturday morning. We thank you for hearing our prayer, Lord, and we give it to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.